0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Exodus chapter 33 verses 7 to 11. Now Moses took a tent and pitched it outside the camp, at a distance from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up, then bow in worship, each one at the door of his tent. The Lord would speak with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. His assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel.
1: Tonight, uh, the picture that we're using to understand what worship's about is the throne room. There are rules for the way you should meet the king or the queen. If you were alive 400 years ago and you visited Hampton Court Palace, just west of London you'd learn this lesson quickly. King William had built a throne room, but it wasn't just one throne room. It was five rooms along a corridor, each with a throne in it. He would choose when he was receiving a foreign dignitary or an ambassador or another king, which of those five rooms you were going to meet him in. If he thought that you were a really important guest... He'd send his servant to say, go into the first room and the king will walk all the way down the corridor. He will make the effort to come and speak with you in the first room. But if he thought you were a pretty lowly, unimportant kind of representative of a different government, then he would go into the very most distant throne room and you would have to walk the walk of shame. You'd have to walk all the way past the other five thrones to get to the one in the last room. It was a way of showing you how important you were. Was the king going to make the move to come to you, or did you have to make the move to go down and meet the king? Protocols or rules develop around how we treat a king or a Queen Uh, when Paul Keating was Prime Minister of Australia in the early 1990s the Queen Queen Elizabeth visited Australia and Paul Keating did something that you must not do there was a throng of people and Paul Keating was trying to get the Queen to keep moving so he walked beside her catch this he put his arm around her waist to shepherd her forward. You do not touch the Queen. That's the rule. And the London newspapers had a field day mocking these unsophisticated Australians and they described Paul Keating, catch this, as the Lizard of Oz (laughs) because he was so low as to touch our Sovereign Lady. No, you can't do that. There are rules about how you engage with, how you talk with, how you meet with the Queen. We don't get it much anymore in Australia. Perhaps we see something of those protocols when you go into a courtroom. Some of you might be in legal work. The judge in a trial is representing the Queen. And in fact... If you want to select the jurors for the trial, then the word is you have to walk before the queen. You walk around the courtroom in front of the judge and then the uh, barristers who are making these kinds of decisions say, I'll have him, I won't have her, and so on. But the, the phrase is you have to walk before the queen. And, of course, the judge is wearing a wig, Uh, The judge has a very particular form of address. We kind of see a little bit of what it's like to treat the monarch in a special way. Well, the scriptures teach us that we have to think hard and carefully about how we approach the king of kings. You can't just do it on your terms to approach the king of kings we do it on his terms it's not our right we can't demand an audience no it's a privilege that's granted to us according to the way the lord jesus himself has set down so when we think about the tent of meeting or the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament we get some clues about the way God is organizing us organizing for us to meet him now we don't look at the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament to work out how you should build a church building today no you don't read the passages about the tabernacle or the temple to work out what you should wear in a church service or whether you should light incense or use oils. No. Those are really superficial ways of thinking about the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament, right? No. To think theologically is to think about the point of... Behind those surface instructions, the tabernacle is teaching us something very deep. How should we approach the king? Or the other way around, how does the king let us approach? The New Testament uses this language to describe what it means for us to be in church. The New Testament uses language to draw near. In Hebrews 10, let us draw near with full assurance. Or James in chapter 4 says, as we draw near to him, so he draws near to us. The language of drawing near is language that's been taken out of the passages in the Old Testament about the tabernacle or about the temple we have to learn what God wants of our worship. When he offers himself to us, when the Lord gives us access to himself, on what terms do we come to him? The earliest Christians didn't just have to invent what a church service was from scratch. The earliest Christians modelled church services on the synagogue service. And the synagogue service was itself modelled on what the tabernacle or the temple would be. There's both a theological and an historical connection behind this image that our worship Is like a throne room we have to have permission to come near we have to have permission to draw close God has to make the way indeed in Exodus chapters 19 to 24 before the people have even received the law there are rules about who can approach God and who not Even in Exodus chapter 24, when Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, he's allowed to go all the way to the top. The elders are allowed to go halfway up and everyone else has to remain in the valley. It's very clear there are rules about who can and who cannot approach. In Leviticus, there are instructions about how to offer sacrifices. You can't just do it any way you want, right? In fact, in Leviticus 10... The sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Elihu got sloppy and they offered unauthorized sacrifices and they lost their lives. One of the basic lessons of the Old Testament is you only can come to God on his terms. And one of the most important lessons that the tabernacle or the temple taught was that if the high priest wanted to go into the holy of holies the place where god's name dwelt the place where god dwelt above the law you had to pass the altar in the courtyard to get there just think about that for a moment the very layout of the tabernacle or the temple said you could only come to god to his presence if you first had a sacrifice which has atoned for your sins. You have to pass the altar before you can get to the ark. You have to be cleansed before you can come into the Lord's presence. That was one of the most basic of all rules. There's no ark without the altar. Isaiah must have learnt the lesson well. Because in Isaiah 6, the story is probably familiar to you. Isaiah has a vision in the temple of the hem of the Lord's robes. And even seeing the hem of the Lord's robes makes Isaiah quake with fear. Falling down, saying that I'm unworthy. And all he'd seen was the hem Of the lord's garment he needs the seraphs the seraphim to bring to him a coal to touch his lip to cleanse his heart he can only be in the lord's presence if he's been cleansed first he knew that that was the lesson of the tabernacle that was the lesson of the temple now i know i can hear what you're saying i've had this conversation often but, Reese, is that true for Christians as well? Can't we come to Jesus anytime? Okay, Jesus has died for our sins. Surely now there are no rules about how we approach. Aren't we, according to John 15, Jesus' friends? What are the rules for us? Well, turn with me to Hebrews 12, the passage that has just been read for us. And we'll see something of an answer to that question. So from Hebrews twelve eighteen, the writer says, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He, he's quoting from or he's reminding them of the story of exodus where there were rules about how you might meet god on mount sinai for they could not endure the order was given even if a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that moses said i tremble with fear that's not the worship for you christians right that's what the writer is saying there are new rules for us So, you're saying, Reese, you're wrong, right? It is different for Christians. There was that kind of terror in the Old Testament, but now we have access to Jesus anytime, freely, of course. And it is true that we are sons and daughters, not slaves. We're not held in bondage to fear, but to love. We aren't Old Testament believers. We're New Testament believers. We have a confidence before the Lord. But catch this in the next few verses. That doesn't let us entirely off the hook. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Oh my goodness. I have to think carefully about how I approach to listen. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. It's kind of still a bit scary. We still have to come to God on his terms. In the old days, he just shook the earth, but... Now God's voice can shake the heavens and the earth. Verse 27, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore let us be grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire yes of course we're not old testament believers and we have a permanent beautiful relationship with the lord jesus but can you see here in that second paragraph that we still believe we still have to approach carefully because our god is a consuming fire who can shake the cosmos we still come to god through jesus christ On his terms. Calvin wrote this about worship. I have no difficulty in conceding to you, he was writing to the bishop, that there's nothing more perilous to our salvation than a preposterous and perverse worship of God not to frame any new worship of God for themselves at random, after their own pleasure, but to know that the only legitimate worship is that which God himself approved from the beginning. A great theologian is saying, just remember, dear Bishop, that we can't come to God in the way that we might choose we'd like to. We still have to come on God's terms unless God called us first we have no right to come into his presence and unless, unless Christ has cleansed us we are not worthy to be in his presence there's no other way to come to God than through Jesus Christ Christ's death happened once for all for all our sins for all people in all places and at all times He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father than through him. There are certain conditions for us coming to God in worship. Christ is both the altar, where our sacrifice has been offered, and he's the ark. He is the word. He's the very embodiment of God's presence in our world and in our life. So we can only come to him with repentance and faith God wants to make a way for us so that we can access his presence so that we can enjoy his presence God has done that through Jesus Christ and it means that in on Sundays when we together as the body draw near to God, where we deliberately decide to put ourselves in the path of God's promises of grace. As we do that, we can, yes, thereby, surely, confidently meet the Lord. Sunday by Sunday, our church, your church, has an appointment with the Lord. We can meet the Lord directly, together. Of course there's going to be God laying out the right way of doing that. We shouldn't be sloppy in thinking about coming to church on Sundays. We shouldn't just imagine that we can choose one week in three That we can turn up late with a takeaway coffee in our hand? As if comfort and convenience was the only thing that counted from our perspective? No, we come to church to meet with the Lord on His terms. He's the King, He can set the terms, right? And lean into His presence when we get there. There's no other way to God. We don't get to God through fine music. We don't get to God through appeals to Mary or the saints. You can't come to God through Buddha or Oprah or yoga. Jesus is the one who makes access possible. And he brings us safely into the throne room. So what happens when we get to the throne room? Well, the first thing you do, of course, is shut up. (laughs) And let the king give you some instructions. You don't speak first when you meet the king. The king has called you first. The king is the one who speaks. We come To church, Jesus leads us into the throne room, as it were, in order to hear the king speak, to discover the wonders of his law, his word by which he rules the world. God not just spoke at the beginning of time or when he gave Moses the law. We meet the living word, who continues to speak, so we need to continue to listen. That's the point of Hebrews 12. Don't refuse him who's speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Listen. In the passage read for us from Exodus 33, God spoke with Moses as speaking with a friend. In Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, we should approach God's word trembling. The basic dimension of Christian discipleship is that God speaks... And we need to learn to listen. How the world needs to hear God's voice. I went into the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., not too long ago. Uh, they have this magnificent room where every human language is represented by a book. So the room is effectively looks like a library with lots of shelves and coloured books on it. The coloured books that were, had the darkest spine were books representing those world languages where there's a full edition of the a full version of the Bible in that language. So of course on the top shelf over there you've got Spanish and Russian and Mandarin and English those languages have a full bible right but that's only like the top shelf of that wall but there's all those books right around the room all the other languages that only have portions of the scriptures translated so the next range of books the the spines are a little a little brighter a little lighter those are portion those are languages of the world that have uh, at least a New Testament or uh, parts of the Old Testament. But then you get round to the end of the room over there, there are just hundreds and hundreds of languages that have not more than a few verses. Isn't that just shocking still? That the way we meet the Lord is in His Word, we come into His presence to listen but there are still so many people groups in the world where there is no Bible in their mother tongue. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a a, a Lutheran pastor in the Second World War who stood up to the Nazis and paid for it with his life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer didn't begin his ministry appreciating the Bible as the place where we hear God's voice. Listen to this paragraph describing his dawning realisation that the Bible, where we hear God's verse, voice, is more important than he'd ever thought. He writes, The entire Bible, then, is the word in which God allows himself to be found by us. That's beautiful, isn't it? He allows himself to be found. He's making the terms. Not a place that's agreeable to us or makes sense to us, but instead it's a place that is strange to us and contrary to our nature. Yet the very place in which God has decided to meet us. This is how I read the Bible now. I ask of each passage, what is God saying to us here? And I ask God that he would help us hear what he wants to say. So we no longer look for general truths which correspond with our eternal nature and are therefore somehow self-evident. Instead, we seek the will of God who is altogether strange to us, whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts, who hides himself from us under the sign of the cross in which all our ways and thoughts have an end. And now let me tell you quite personally that since I've learned to read the Bible in that way, and it's not so long ago, it has become daily more wonderful to me. How did he find resistance to the Nazi dictatorship? He read the Bible. We need to be team players and listen to the voice of our captain. So the most important thing you can bring to church every Sunday is your ears. I'm assuming that most Sundays you come with them, right? Faith comes from hearing. Paul writes in Romans ten seventeen. We need to come receptive, ready, wanting to hear God's voice. We want to come expecting that our sermons will contain biblical content. The sermon is the main course, as it were. We come into the throne room to listen. But, like any audience with the king, after the king has spoken... It's likely that the king will ask you to present your petitions or your requests, to address the king and ask the king for what you need, or to present before the king the very things that you came into his presence that day to ask for. And we can do that with confidence. We are his sons and daughters. He has presented to us his words of promise. So we grab hold of those promises, believing that what God wants to give to us, after we've asked, he will indeed give. We don't offer pigeons or goats as our sacrifice, but we do offer the sacrifice of our lips. To present to him our requests. But oh, how many churches in Melbourne have given up praying in the church service? Actually, you know, it's not even just Melbourne, uh, it's a present around the world. A friend of mine is an historian and he's uh, an Englishman who works in Scotland. His name is David Bevington. And he's got one of those steel trap minds. He travels around the world and he's been lecturing for the longest time. Wherever he's gone, anywhere in the world, in any church service he's attended, he's written down exactly how many minutes were spent on each part of the church service. So, three minutes of prayer two minutes of Bible reading, five hours of preaching, no, not really, Um, whatever it might be. He writes down all the minutes uh, and he says everywhere, no matter where he goes in the world, the biggest change to church services over the last 40 years is that evangelical Christians have stopped praying in church. Is that not despicable? Is that just not unbelievable? Evangelical Christians who believe that God God speaks to us and invites us to speak to him in return, we've given up speaking to him. Okay, we might sing songs. Sometimes they're about us and not about God, right? But are we actually asking him for things? 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 6 expects us to be praying for governments that there might be peace in the land that the gospel might advance how many churches do i visit where there are no prayers for the government i have people come to me in the ridley chapel uh, and we have a pattern of intercession such that we pray for a a different region of the world and a different aspect of australian society every day people saying to me can i give it a shot can I have a shot at doing the prayers because I've never done it before. I think I could do it, but my church, we just don't pray. They might pray in their small groups, okay, but no longer in the public meeting. This is our verbal act of faith, asking God for things. And okay, it might be, that you're not very good at it, you stammer a bit. But that's why the Bible's given us 150 sample prayers called the Psalms. If you're not good at it, at least if we use the Psalms in our Sunday services, we're getting some practice. God's teaching us, God's training us what it might be to cast before him our concerns and our our requests. It's true as well that lots of churches have given up using the psalms. Bonhoeffer again. Uh, There's not the juice, the strength, the passion, the fire which I find in the Psalter. Everything else tastes too cold and too hard. With the recovery of the Psalter, Bonhoeffer writes, will come unexpected power. So, worship is kind of like a throne room. We, together, draw near to God. And we draw near to God to hear God's voice speak. And then when God's voice has spoken, we present to him our intercessions, our requests, our needs. And then, as in any kind of audience with the king... We're sent out from the king's presence to represent him in the world. We've been in his presence, so we want to talk about it. I haven't often been in the presence of greatness, but some years ago I did meet Hillary Clinton. I assume that Hillary Clinton is still a name that people are familiar with. Uh, uh, it, it was a Super Tuesday in 2008. That's, a, that's a, the day in choosing an American president when lots of states have their primaries. And she came to the town where I was living. I, I got there early in the morning, like about 7 o'clock, fearing that uh, there wouldn't be many seats, but there was actually no one there yet. <laughs> we got through the first two rounds of security. I thought, this is just too easy. The third round of security said... "You." can only have an invitation you had to come you can only be admitted if you had a written invitation so somberly we turned around to leave but one of hillary's minders was standing nearby and she called out no let them in we're not sure that we're going to fill the room <laughs> so without the invitation or a written invitation at least uh, my friend diana and i went into the room we sat down and we were waiting and had to wait for hours and hours because she was very delayed. In the meantime, the same minder comes up to Diana and I, a friend who was living in my dorm. She said, uh, The minder said, Would you folk like to sit on the stage with the senator? <laughs> I'm going. Uh, senator, so I had to do it in American political uh, rallies where you have behind the person speaking a range of different kinds of. You know, ethnicities and ages and <laughs> someone will be wearing a white lab coat and someone will be wearing an army uniform and so on. Oh, I didn't open my mouth at all because I thought, if they hear that I'm not an American, perhaps, they, perhaps they'll disallow me or something. So I just, I just kind of nodded kind of acquiescently. So we're sitting up there on the, on the stage uh, and she arrives to kind of rock star entry. It's not that I'm particularly fond of Hillary's politics, but she's plenty smart. And she did a a conversation, around table on children's and women's issues, and she knew the law, and she knew the economics, and she knew the sociology of it. It was an impressive performance. After the meeting had ended, people were gathering up to do their selfies, right? I'm "I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it, because that's so sucky, and I just don't want to be that guy. (laughs) And I did have my camera with me, as it turned out, but... (laughs) But no, I'm not not saying I'm going to do it. And then I was standing back and then the crowd kind of parted a little and then she's sitting there or standing there as far away as Andrew is and she turned to me and she said, do you want a photo too? I go. (laughs) And do you think I've stopped talking about that in the last 14 years? I'm talking about it again tonight. (laughs) Because when you've been in the presence of greatness, you just want to talk about it, right? You want to pass on something of that experience something of what you've learned something of how you've benefited so when we've had our audience with the king sunday by sunday as we his body have drawn near to hear his voice to present before him our requests so we're sent out as ambassadors declaring his praises both in church and in our daily lives. Worship on Sundays is not avoiding the world, but getting ready to serve the world. As John Piper says, mission exists where worship does not. The point of a church service is not that you get to the end, and then the person leading the church service says, uh, you know, stay around for coffee, come back next week. Because if the only reason you've been there is to get the reminder that you have to be there again next week. No, the end of a church service is, is the exhortation to go and serve the world. You've just been in the presence of greatness. Talk about it. Worship is like entering the throne room of the Lord on his terms to listen to his voice, to speak our requests and to be commissioned as ambassadors to serve him when we've left the Sunday meeting. The image of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle or the temple, ultimately the synagogue carried over into church services, helps us to understand what worship's about. Christ! Christ! is the tabernacle Christ is the one in whom God's fullness dwelt Christ is the one who came to our world to serve us as both the altar and the ark but that doesn't mean that we're not being built together as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices as we draw near to Christ the rock as living stones We find ourselves gathering Sunday by Sunday to encourage each other as we enter the holy place through the living way by Christ's blood. To worship is to draw near. Worship centres on Christ. Worship is learning to be focused or dependent on Christ and it's learning how to celebrate in his presence week by week. Surely then, an unbeliever could come into your service, fall down on their knees and say, surely God is in your midst. So to conclude, please uh, turn open to page 12 of your booklet. Let's worship God by saying Psalm 95 together. We're practising worship even as we say these words. So, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God the great king above all gods in his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him the sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land come let us bow down in worship for the lord our maker for he is our god and we are the people of his pasture the flock under his care today if only you would hear his voice Uh, please, please, Heavenly Father, may we know what it means to draw near uh, on your terms to listen to your voice, to present before you our requests, to be emboldened for our witness in the world. Please may we know this day what it means to worship for Christ's sake. Amen.